Welcome to Deep Focus, a radio show about movies and New Haven. I'm your host, Tom Breen. Before we begin today's show, I want to let you all know that we will be hosting our annual Best Movies of the Year episode on Thursday, January 4th, 2018, from noon to 1 p.m. right here on WNHH. I'll be joined by Madison Art Cinema's owner Arnold Gorlick and New Haven film critic Dan Heaton to go through our top 10 movies of 2017. But if you'd like to share your own pick, please call 203-479-0376. That's 203-479-0376. And leave a brief voicemail with your name, where you're from, and a few sentences on your favorite movie of 2017. We'll make sure to include your voicemail on the best of show. Uh, the deadline for that is January 3rd, and, and we'll go on air on January 4th. Okay, so now to today's show. On the first segment of today's episode, I'll be joined by Bridgeport-based filmmaker Francesca Andre to talk about her new movie, Charcoal, a short film about colorism and prejudice within and without the Black community against dark skin. We'll talk about the origins of this movie, Andre's background as a fashion and news photographer, and her own experiences with colorism in Haiti and here in the States. On the second segment of the show, I'll be joined by New Haven Independent reporter Alan Appel for a review of The Shape of Water, director Guillermo del Toro's new sci-fi horror romance about a mute cleaning woman in early 60s Baltimore who falls in love with an, of course, amphibious man held captive at the secret U.S. Army research facility where she works. But first, I'm very happy to welcome to the show Francesca Andre. Francesca is a photographer and film director with a master's in film and television from Sacred Heart University. Her photography has been published in the New York Post, New York Daily News, and CT Voice, among other publications. And her new short movie, Charcoal, has played at film festivals around the world, including right here in New Haven at November's Nasty Women Film event held at the John Slade Eli House. Francesca, thanks so much for coming on the show. It's a pleasure to have you here. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, so I wonder if uh, for those New Haveners who did not make it out to the John Slate Eli House in November to see your movie, which I believe was the first movie on that lineup screened, could you introduce us to Charcoal? Uh, what What is this movie about? Okay, so Charcoal is, really tells the story of two women and their struggles of colorism, dealing with self-hatred, and uh, reclaiming their power. It's really a story about redemption, finding love, um, especially self-love and breaking the cycle of self-hatred. Excellent. And could you uh, could you define colorism for us? Uh, so colorism is discrimination um, against uh, skin color. So it's like dark skin versus light skin. Um, so it's um, I don't know I don't know if I have a better word uh, to describe it, but it's a, it's a form of discrimination based on skin tone, basically. Yeah, no, I, I think that I think that gets at it uh, pretty well from what I understand and what I've read. And you know, I, I wonder if this is something that you'd agree with in, in doing uh, some some research research on colorism, other movies that have dealt with colorism coming across the uh, the dark girls and light girls documentaries from a filmmaker named mm-hmm. I believe Bill Duke. He talks about how uh, racism is prejudice uh, against people based on their skin color. Uh, you know, exhibited by people not within that group, whereas colorism is uh, prejudice within the group, uh, as in within the African-American community or within a, a darker skin community. I wonder if that is how you understand the difference between colorism and racism as well. Is racism from without, colorism within? But I, I feel like colorism derives from racism. You know, it's, it's the whole idea of darker skin is not as valuable as beautiful as lighter skin. It, it, this is one of the things that uh, resulted from people being enslaved and um, believing in, in those type of concepts or ideas of beauty. So colorism is, is, is dealing with that residue, basically, you know, from slavery, from racism. It's, it's, it's not that for off. I don't know if that makes sense. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, I think so. And, you know, one of the, I, there's there's a lot to, you know, it's a, it's a short movie. It's about five minutes long, a little bit longer. But there is a, a density of, of information in there, and I think a, a lot to to unpack. In particular, that you decided to tell this story of, um, of well, I was going to say one woman's experience with colorism, but it's it's not true. It's, it's multiple women. It's kind of different generations of women dealing with mm-hmm. uh, the prejudice and the stigma of having darker skin and the way that that um, they have either internalized or, or bucked that, that prejudice. Um, and I wonder why uh, you decided to tell this story as an intergenerational one. Is it just that, and that you see it 
uh, colorism as a, an inheritance coming directly from times of slavery? Or did you feel like something about uh, focusing on different women of different ages experience with colorism gets at, I don't know, the different angles that uh, different perspectives on, on, on this multi, you know, various problem. I, I wanted to show how it stays with us, how it travels, how we pass it around. And so showing that how the, you know, as a child, the young woman being told that her skin wasn't good enough. And, you know, then we see her entering, um, we see her enter an adulthood, we see her becoming a teenager, then becoming an adult, and still um, keeping this belief and passing on to her own child. So it's just really showing how the cycle of, of self-hatred, the cycle of, of, of colorism, you know, uh, if it doesn't stop, it will continue. So I really wanted to show it from a very young age to a teenager and the pressure of wanting to be accepted and to an adult, once she knows the truth, you know, but it's then she realized that she has to take her power back and stop that cycle. So uh, that's kind of like how I wanted to uh, to tell that story from that lens, from that perspective, especially for me personally as a child, I was made aware of my skin tone at a very, very young age. So in Haiti, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't white versus black. It was really lighter skin versus darker skin, right? And uh, my entire life, I've been told that, okay, well, well, not my entire life. So when I was a very, um, probably around like six, seven years old, uh, one of the my most memorable experience of my mother is her taking me to the salon and having to get my hair uh, pressed. And I remember, uh, you know, just the heat, you know, that, that comes from that uh, um, uh, just, feeling like my scalp was on fire and then around 11 years old I got a, I got a relaxer and my scalp almost burned from that relaxer though so I was told like oh you need to stay longer for your hair to be straighter so that was the first thing I've been told that my hair wasn't good enough because we went through so many different phases of my hair so I wanted to incorporate that in the film to show that uh, those are the ideas how it can be taught at a, at a very young age and if we don't stop it, this is it will continue. So that's why I have three different, you know, the same woman go to a phase. But you know, I feel like it's it's not even about, you know, age. You know, lots of women fall under that pressure and can relate to it. So there, there are two. I that's thank you for sharing that story. I, I think that gets at two parts of charcoal that I found really fascinating. I think really reveal something about uh, colorism, and that's. Um, one is that your movie is not just about um, self-consciousness about skin color, but also about uh, hair, in particular the mm-hmm. texture of one's hair, and also about the the shape and size of one's nose. Uh, that and skin mm-hmm. color, those three elements, I think, are singled out by you as uh, as part of a kind of dark skin person's physique that is uh, kind of constantly under critique by by broader culture and also by by friends and family and those are the three uh, kind of key elements that that uh, mm-hmm. dark skinned women are are uh, are um, kind of singled out for for um, for being and be, are castigated by and so I wanted to bring that up and then the second is that you know the movie also deals quite explicitly with uh, commercial beauty products and cosmetic products yes. that are marketed directly at uh, dark-skinned women to try to, mm-hmm. uh, you know, reverse the the quote-unquote stigma of, of having uh, dark skin and these attributes. And I wonder if you could uh, talk a little bit about, you know, one, how colorism extends to both hair and facial features, and two, uh, your experience with and what you wanted to communicate about this whole commercial industry that is perpetuating colorism. Yeah, so I the I the whole I don't know if you um are aware that there are, you know in the market there are a lot of skin bleaching products and so on and on the covers of this soap it's always a light skin very fair fair skin woman and basically telling the woman um if you use that soap you will be lighter you'll get lighter so um, I've seen it before, um, just going up back home, and I've seen documentaries about it. And, you know, um, even in my own community, there are a lot of women that still bleach their skin. So 
So it's not only because uh, some of them really hate themselves because this is what society is telling them. Uh, even, uh, I don't know, was it Kerry Washington who was on the cover of a magazine and um, she was upset that they kind of photoshopped her skin and made her look lighter. Again, this is the whole idea that lighter is better, lighter is more beautiful, and those standards, uh, those ideas of beauty do not include black women. So I wanted to make sure that um, that was covered in the film. Uh, we saw one of the character using uh, soap, a bleaching, a bleaching soap, so she can be lighter, so she could be accepted. And, I don't know if I answer your question. Oh, that, don't mind repeating the second part, yeah. No, that certainly does well. Actually, I, I wanted to interject and say that uh, you know, I think a lot of our listeners uh, will maybe most associate uh, skin bleaching with Michael Jackson. I think he's a very you know prominent uh, cultural figure who uh, who uh, underwent that type of chemical skin lightening. But also, you know, skin bleaching is a a very uh, you know incredibly popular kind of cosmetic transformation. Uh, all around the world, in particular in mm-hmm. in India, in Southeast Asia, and and yeah. also in uh, I, I understand that you you said that in Haiti, skin bleaching is quite popular as well. It's in the Caribbean. It's not only Haiti. It's everywhere. You know, it's everywhere. This is just um, you know, uh, how do you define beauty if it's based on uh, Western ideas of beauty, European standards of beauty? Then you know, people in in the other countries they they they, they they believe that idea, or they fall under that pressure as well. Um, so uh, I'm I want to let listeners know that you're listening to WNHH LP New Haven's home for community radio. This is Deep Focus, a radio show about movies and New Haven, and I'm your host Tom Breen, talking with Bridgeport filmmaker Francesca Andre about her new short movie Charcoal, uh, which is about colorism and prejudice both within and uh, without the African American community against people with darker skin. Um, Francesca, I, I wanted to, so on, on last week's show, I, I spoke with Connecticut poet Kate Russian about two movies that have had a, a kind of seminal influence on her understanding and love of cinema. And she's an African-American woman, an African-American female poet. And she said that, you know, uh, the two, two movies she wanted to talk about were um, Julie, uh, Julie Dash's Daughters of the Dust and uh, Marcel Camus' Black Orpheus. Uh, and I, I thought that there was, you know, something, uh, uh, you know, f- fortunately or fortuitously kind of simpatico between that conversation about Daughters of the Dust and what you're trying to do here in that Julie Dash, you know, represents a great diversity of African-American women in that movie. There are dark-skinned women, there are light-skinned women, they're tall, they're short, they're, you know, tr- traditionally beautiful, whatever that may mean. And then, you know, women who have uh, kind of more weather-worn faith, people who have, you know, clearly of different uh, economic backgrounds, class backgrounds. It's it's a real, uh, it really spans the, the whole diversity in, in, in a, you know, in the history of movies have not been kind, much like the history of the United States, has not been kind to African-American women. Uh, and particularly in cultural representation, there, you know, aren't, you know, there's usually kind of one or two stereotypes in terms of how African-American women can look and talk and act uh, in most mainstream movies. And I wonder if um, if this, uh, I don't know, maybe tell, tell me a bit about how you uh, try to both cast this movie uh, in terms of who you wanted to play the different roles and also how you went about lighting this movie. I know that there's a, you know, an ongoing conversation really led by filmmakers like Ava DuVernay about how Hollywood has not been kind in terms of how it lights dark-skinned characters. Um, t- tell me a bit about uh, about lighting and casting in Charcoal. So with casting Charcoal, uh, the actress, um, Laurie Francois, she's a friend of mine. I've worked with her before. I've photographed her. So I'm very familiar. And I, you know, I photographed you know, lots of black women. So I, I, my background in photography, I don't really have a problem in terms of uh, lighting dark skin, lighting black skin. So that wasn't really a challenge for me. Uh, even in terms of, uh, well, we didn't really use a makeup artist, but if I would have to use a makeup artist, that would, I, would, I would know exactly which direction to go because that's something that I do on a regular basis. I work with dark models. I work with, I mean, what I mean by dark models, dark skin models. I work with black, black people so that I don't have that problem. Um, in terms of casting, um, it was an organic process. I wrote it and I sent it to Shengu. And uh, we had uh, several conversations. She was able to relate to it. 
as well as Rory, the second actress, and then the young girl who played the uh, the young Choco. She was she has been bullied in school uh, for being dark skinned. She's been made fun of, you know. Uh, so she was able to relate to the story. So that was the first. Uh, so when I sat down and spoke to all of them, they all understood the purpose of the film. They uh, were able to personalize it. I did post casting. I I, I post the casting. Posted the casting. Cast mattresses, but it. I wanted someone who could relate to the story in order to really um, embody the character. Um, so um, that that wasn't that difficult because the two actresses they know my style. I've worked with them before, so uh, we were comfortable uh, to talk about it, to discuss it, and um, they knew that it was a very sensitive topic, a sensitive subject. So I think being able to work with people that I know that I'm comfortable with, who understood where I was going, the direction I was taking it, was very important to me. Even using a child actor in the in the film, um, uh, who brought her own experience to the topic, to the film, that that was that was very important to me. Could you? Uh, um, could you tell uh, me and our listeners a little bit about your background as a photographer? Um, I, I know that, you know, just flipping through your website, which we'll make sure to link to on the, the show page uh, for this episode, um, you, you really, you know, you do focus on uh, African-American women in, in a lot of your photography uh, and a lot of close-ups, uh, you know, a lot of very uh, close and intimate inspections of people's faces, people's eyes, lips, nose. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, these are, you know, very intimate and, and beautiful portraits of, of uh, a variety of women. And I wonder uh, what you kind of set out to accomplish in your own photography and, and how that either intersects with filmmaking or whether filmmaking lets you do something completely different. Well, I think they all, it's all interrelated. I, you know, I was raised by my grandmother, so I always have very strong female energy around me, and I'm fascinated by people, their stories, and um, even as as a very young child, uh, my grandmother did not know how to read or write, but she was an amazing storyteller that was always around her. When I see people, uh, even in my photography, it's really trying to capture the energy, trying to capture the spirit. So that's why you always see a lot of close-up. So I do other things as well. I do cover events. I do wedding. But I always try to uh, include uh, storytelling, even when I take when I take a photograph. What does this photograph tell you about that person? What can you learn by just looking at it? And working with women, to me, is, is this is where I feel... The, the most inspired, you know? Um, so that's the reason why you see lots of women, uh, lots of black women in my work, um, and lots of portraits. Now, this this movie has played at film festivals really all around the country. Uh, in, I'm just looking at a few of them. The Silicon Valley African American Film Festival, Yonkers Film Festival, Sisters of the Diaspora Film Festival, and of course, uh, the Nasty Women Film Event here in New Haven. Uh, and I wonder, uh, first of all, what kind of uh, responses you've been getting at the different screenings. I know that uh, Charcoal was one of the uh, kind of award-winning movies at the, at the Nasty Women Film Event in New Haven. But in general, how have, um, how have people been responding to Charcoal? The response has been very positive. And um, I think what makes me uh, happy as a filmmaker, as a director of this film, is the fact that people are comfortable to have conversation about these issues, you know? Uh, We talk a lot about racism. We don't really talk that much about colorism, right? Some people don't even know or don't even have words to describe colorism. I have sometimes issues, you know, problems finding words to how do we really, how do I really, you know, uh, describe colorism, right? So it's not just about skin tone, it's hair, it's everything. Some people, their entire life has been uh, impacted by colorism. So uh, the response has been positive. And then because there's also a message of hope, of redemption in Shoko, women who are not, you know, who are not black have been able to understand and take something from it because it's really telling women to be brave, to, uh, to dare to love themselves, you know, to start that journey to healing and self-love. So um, uh, there's a universal message, you know, uh, in Shaco, that a lot of women have come up to me and tell, and told me that you know if they were uh, uncomfortable leaving their homes without makeup after seeing the film, they feel like they can be 
themselves. They can be who they were made to be, who they want to be, who they choose to be. So the, I'm very happy to say that and very grateful for the response that I've, I've received um, for the film so far. Yeah, this this may be a bit unfair because I'm turning you for a second from filmmaker into film festival correspondent. But if you um, just you know if uh, if you have had a chance to talk with any other filmmakers at some of the festivals like the Sisters of the Diaspora Film Festival or Women of African Descent Film Festival, or if you've had a chance to see any of the other movies that have played alongside yours uh, at those festivals, I wonder um, what else you have seen. What other stories from, in particular, African American female directors? Uh, you're seeing up alongside charcoal and whether you feel like charcoal fits uh, fits within uh, a kind of larger conversation among uh, um, African-American female filmmakers or whether you think that it stands out in a certain way? Well, I feel like there are... Uh, so, for example, at the Real Sisters Film Festival, there was a film, uh, Leche, and another one was Black Enough, you know, a documentary that you know, highlighted some of the same issues that Shockle, um, um covered. So, um, so, so the, the whole thing is, is, even though there are similarities, we don't. There's not a single narrative. So, uh, and also, this is something that's based on my own personal experience, and my own, you know, something that I drew from my environment to to write this film. So, um, I, I think it's 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 important to encourage, you know, all different type of narratives. It's not a single narrative. So those, those films, even though there were some similarities, some uh, common um, elements, but they, they were different and they stood out in, you know, in their own right. Black Enough was very different from Choco, but I can see, I can relate to Black Enough, just like when I spoke to the filmmaker, she was able to uh, understand the message I was trying to convey in Choco. Um, so they, in a way, yes, it does stand out uh, oh, because it's a, it's coming. It's my lens, my perspective. It's personal. Another way that uh, it's something that uh, African American or not only African American black women from all over the world can can understand and relate to. I know that this is a a movie that um, that you directed, that you served as cinematographer for, I know your husband edited, um, working on a very low budget. This, you know, this is a, a classic kind of very um, low budget, but also very, you know, beautiful looking short film. And I wonder uh, just practically in terms of putting together the the people and the resources and the time to, to make this thing, um, how, how was your experience ma- making this movie? Was it uh, a, a big um, kind of step up in terms of being a logistical challenge from what you're used to with photography? Were you able to use uh, some of the infrastructure, either support network you already have in place in that area of your work to help uh, charcoal? Or how, how was it just making making a movie? I think this is a movie that I wanted to make. This is a film story that I wanted to tell. So I, I think no matter what the challenges were at the time, I was able to face them. I have like emotional support from friends. And of course, having my husband by my side, as a producer and an editor, was uh, um, very, um, I guess, really encouraged me to keep going. But I, I knew I had no money just to make it to begin with. And when I um, had a DP that just dropped out last minute, I had to step up because I did not want to be to direct the film and have to film it myself. I really wanted to have some levels of separation. I wanted somebody else's interpretation of, of, of the film. So having a, a separate DP, another person to DP the film, was something originally that I wanted to do. But, you know, we had all the actors there and the person couldn't make it. So I had to step up and I, I've already worked with this woman. I knew what I wanted. So I think this was an emotional decision. I went with it. So all the shots, all the close-up that you see, this is exactly what I had in mind. And I was able to tell it myself my own way. And and it was a it was a good um, a good challenge to overcome a good experience for me as well because when I was looking at the footage I was happy because um, what I had in mind that's exactly how I filmed it. Um, that's not an experience that I would like to uh, <laughs> not to say that my next project I don't want to have DP my own project I want to because when you film it a lot of times it's like I'm not saying I stop directing but it, it will be great to be able to have that 
flexibility, you know, to have that choice not to, you know, not to have to do both at the same time. On top of it, I produced the film, so anything that went wrong, I had to uh, make sure I found a solution for it. I had to deal with that. So it was it was good stress, you know, good stress. <laughs> it's, well, it certainly it looks like it paid off, both in terms of the, I mean, aesthetically the, and thematically, uh, how powerful the movie is, but also in terms of the response. I mean, it certainly is encouraging to see so many people um, coming out in support of it. Uh, and I, uh, I, I wanted to... Um, maybe uh, end our, our conversation as we uh, get close to the end of this interview um, by asking a question that I ask a lot of uh, Connecticut filmmakers. And that's, you know, this radio show is specifically about movies in New Haven, where I interview people in the city and in the kind of surrounding cities of New Haven and Southern Connecticut about some of the, the challenges and benefits of making movies while based out of Connecticut. Um, I wonder, uh, you know, what are... Um, what are some of the, the challenges and benefits that you've found as a Bridgeport-based filmmaker? And what would make making movies in Bridgeport, in Southern Connecticut, a better experience for you? What would help uh, kind of facilitate this, uh, this process for another charcoal or something even bigger? I think for me, what I'm looking for right now is a space, like a community, you know, to know if I'm working on a on a specific project, for example, my next project is about depression, to be able to find a space where I can go and meet people and talk to people and work with local talents and find people who are invested in the community who can come in, who can come on board as producers to help finance this type of project and really expose it to more people. I think what I don't have is really that community that I'm looking for. It's probably out there, but I don't that I, I, I really know how to connect the dots in order to do it. I think as artists, it's good to be able to have that space, space where you can create, but not just have projects that just sit on your computer and not know what's going to happen to them, but to know that if you have an idea that can benefit a larger population, that you will find the resources that you need in order to bring that those ideas to life. I don't think I'm, a, I'm, I'm there yet, but I'm, 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 I'm positive and I'm optimistic that um, either you or other people that I've <laughs> that I've met so far will will help me find you know will help me redirect myself and find me that safe community where we can tell stories that matter to us. Well, you know, I think that is uh, it, not just a perfect articulation of what it is you're looking for, but also uh, what the mission of this show is, and that this is, I think, the hundred and second episode. Uh, I've been doing this for over two and a half years and trying to do exactly that, trying to find the film community, film-loving community, and making community in New Haven and surrounding towns. Um, so I, I so appreciate you um, being part of this, and I hope to, you know, that that your conversation here uh, and your, you know, continuing to make movies in Bridgeport and elsewhere, um, you know, helps you connect with that community that, um, you know, that you're both trying to represent and try to speak to. Um, so, Francesca Andre, thank you so much for, for coming on the show. Where can people go online uh, to find out more about your work and to maybe watch the trailer for Charcoal? Mm-hmm. So they can go on my website, uh, FrancescaAndrePhotography.com, and my business site is Optic21.com. And I just really want to thank you, Tom, for this great opportunity, for this great platform to talk about my work and to talk about my experience as a filmmaker and photographer Thank you so much. Oh, my, my pleasure. And do you, do you know, if does Charcoal have any upcoming screenings at any film festivals yes. nearby? Yes. So it's going to be at St. John University on February 9th, and it's going to be at BAM on March 14th. And at the, give me one second, I'm going to, I have to go back and just look for the date. Uh, I have one more date. Oh, sure. <laughs> but well, it's all the way in May, and also at the New Haven International Film Festival, and the New Haven Documentary Film Festival. I just don't have the dates right now. Oh, great. In well, Connecticut, it's going to be at two film festivals. Excellent. Well, we will make sure to uh, put those dates and those links on deepfocusradio.com, which is where you can find a recording of, of this episode and a link to uh, everything that we spoke about today. Um, so plenty of opportunities to see Charcoal in the near future. But yes, Francesca, uh, thank you again, and we look forward to talking with you very soon. Thank you so much. Okay, have a great day. You too. Okay, coming up next, a conversation about uh, Guillermo del Toro's The Shape of Water um, with Alan Appel. But first, let's hear a little bit from uh, local group Ellison Jackson's song, Man from Lowell.
Deep Focus, a radio show about movies and New Haven. I'm your host, Tom Breen, and I'm joined for this segment by my trusty movie reviewing partner, Alan Appel, for the last episode of 2017. Hi, Tom. Hello, Alan. Thank you for coming by. Uh, it's It's been, well, for, it's always, you know, it's such a pleasure to have you on every week. So thank you for uh, devoting so much movie-going time, movie-going dollars, and uh you know, radio chatting hours to, to talking. Well, well, thank you. I, 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 I thank you for the <laughs> beloved assignments every week. Well, we'll see how beloved this one is. It was quite beloved for me, but we will find out in just a second uh, whether Alan Appel liked The Shape of Water, a new movie from Mexican filmmaker Guillermo del Toro. He of Pan's Labyrinth, Hellboy, Pacific Rim. Uh, this movie offers a modern, wildly imaginative, defiantly romantic take on the creature feature a staple of mid-century horror and science fiction cinema, really having its heyday from the 1930s, 1950s, with movies like everything from King Kong and Dracula to Invasion of the Body Snatchers, Forbidden Planet, and uh, this movie's uh, kind of, you know, most specific uh, um, forefather, which is Creature from the Black Lagoon. Uh, This movie tells the story, that is The Shape of Water, tells the story of Elisa Esposito, played by Sally Hawkins, a mute cleaning woman who works at a top-secret government research facility in early 1960s Baltimore. Elisa lives a lonely, unremarkable, highly routinized life that is brightened only by a romantic wistfulness that emanates from the movie theater beneath her apartment and by friendships with a closeted neighboring artist and a beleaguered but sympathetic fellow cleaning woman. Uh, At work, something unexpected arrives at the research facility, an amphibian man, as they want to do, gilled and webbed and muscular, 
regal and terrified, captured by the Americans from the waters of South America and held in chains in a swimming pool prison in the hope that it will provide some kind of new weapon of mass destruction in the Soviet arms race. What happens instead is that Elisa falls in love with the amphibian man, and the rest of the movie tracks Elisa's courtship and relationship with this creature and her plot to liberate it from the shackles of the research compound. So, Alan, uh, when you uh, were watching The Shape of Water, did you find yourself uh, longing to be freed from the prison pool that Amphibian Man was uh, submerged in for for most of the movie? Were you dancing uh, a la a 30s Hollywood musical with the Amphibian Man and Sally Hawkins by your side? Or were you hoping to, I don't know, keep it shackled and and return to your day uh, racing with the Soviets? I was totally won over. Um, you know, I, I think I took your advice. We had a brief conversation uh, and you were about to launch into uh, the, the the cinema tradition out of which the movie comes. And then you bit your lip and said, ah, the less you know, the better. And that was very good advice. You know, it's very true what you say, that it does come out of the, the creature feature tradi- tradition. But I was uh, in the grip of what I felt was uh, uh, was something fresh, even though it's in the tradition. And uh, something really quite... Um, quite magical and and uh you know a- as the plot progressed and all the tropes from the previous films um uh you know made their play in the movie it it, it came through to me as a, not uh not um taking away but the a, a kind of homage that enhanced the um the the, the good heartedness of this movie is so wonderful and i was thinking of some of the other movies we've discussed this year, since it's sort of end of the year, and I know you're you're planning your your uh, your program about the ten best, but you know these movies, which um, th- this is a this is a creature feature tradition, but it also bears comparison to um, movies that evoke uh, uh, cinema from past eras, everything from uh, like um, La La Land. Because uh, there are dance sequences in this in this movie when she's uh, you know tapping her way, which I think may be even more of a direct reference to the what, kind of what La La Land was pointing back to as well, the Busby Berkeley style kind of nineteen thirties highly choreographed, uh, right. you know, highly dolled up um, dance sequences, the Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers era of Hollywood filmmaking. That's right, and and um, uh, you could even make the case that all of the water that pours through this movie because this is a this is a wonderful creature that is both able to breathe on land and in the water but does better in the water and it gets dried out so in order for her to make his escape after they've fallen in love and are plotting uh, the rain comes down and i was thinking to myself now what rain does this remind me of and it's total gene kelly i mean this is this is no there's no attempt to make this rain seem naturalistic so it is really a kind of movie homage and of course as you pointed out she lives on the fourth floor above the Orpheum Theater, the classically, I mean, there's no better name for theater. It also put me in mind of Cinema Paradiso, which is a totally different movie, but it, but it's all about um, a, a kind of the living living the product of the dream factory. And I, well, I'm sorry. So I was just, I was just utterly won over from, from many points of view. And I, and I thought that it also bears comparison, uh, you know, sort of uh, in a more generalized genre way of thinking to, uh, to movies that that place their particular fantasies in historical context, and in in this case, it is the Cold War, um, and the creature is uh, being planned for use for um, our country to catch up in the space race. Um, and for some reason, this this is those things enrich the movie. Whereas I was thinking of Wonder Woman, which is a big movie from this year, and that said, <clears throat> that mixes its fantasy with. Excuse me. <coughs> right, that's set primarily World during World War One. Now right. that to me, uh, there's something jarring about the fact that on the one hand it's set in World War One, but the world that um, that super that Wonder Woman comes out of is is, some, is something from uh, you know Edith Hamilton and Greek fairy tales, and and it's such a broad canvas. It just is let, struck let me, me give as you, pretentious. Let me give you a second to. Uh, but this to is cough. intimate. This is intimate, and it works for me. I think you're exactly right in that uh, the maybe World War One backdrop for Wonder Woman was more of uh, an opportunity or an excuse for the filmmakers to show uh, kind of massive destruction of cities, of people, uh, kind of death on mass in a uh, an environment uh, of you know worldwide war that 
viewers could take with some kind of credibility. You don't have to spend your you know disbelief too much to watch thousands of people being mowed down at once, uh, even if you are watching a superhero. So I think that the the reason there, which I don't think is a good enough one, uh, is just you know here is an environment in which people are used to seeing massive destruction, uh, and so let's just have Wonder Woman participate in that here. Uh, in the the space race and the arms race of the Soviet Union, uh, Guillermo del Toro is really tapping into uh, kind of what the what defined that era uh, of American uh, kind of global paranoia and competition, as well as showing how uh, you know the the figures maybe most abused and most overlooked at that time, women, especially a woman with a disability, a woman who literally can't talk. Uh, uh, and kind of experiences the world through the fantasy of movies, an African-American woman, and then a gay man. Those are the, the kind of three characters at the center of the story, which are three characters that are not, you know, included at the, at the center of most kind of understandings of, and especially how power was uh, was executed in the early 1960s and late 1950s. But this movie, you know, especially in the character played by Michael Shannon, the kind of villain of the group, the the man who captured this amphibious creature. And Strickland. Strickland. Is name, a good name. And is trying to, you know, put him to uh, some kind of warfare use. And he is, I found it a, a perfect counterpoint between... Uh, the the paranoia, the competitiveness, the hyper masculinity, the um, the disregard for anyone and everyone except one's own uh, kind of brute claim for power, juxtaposed with these three figures who are not just resisting, you know, in terms of trying to wrest power and control from this man, but they have a total. I mean, this is a world of of romance, of beauty, of love, uh, of connection across cultures and even across species. I, I, I just found that it, it was a wonderful homage to that era while also completely subverting it in terms of who is at the center of the story and how they go about taking control. And I, and I think the, 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 it, it, the word is loving because even, even the, um, uh, the uh, oppressive negative characters like Strickland are treated with love in this, if you define love as the um you know the creators giving attention to detail um you know he 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 he's really a character right out of mad men uh the way he dresses the way he goes home and has this wife who's like uh like somebody out of life magazine uh and he's got the two perfect kids but he's utterly obsessed with the kind of the power of positive thinking i think you mentioned and we were talking about some movie was it was it um Three billboards last week, but the what, the opening sequences of Flannery O'Connor. Yes, the opening one of the opening sequences here, or when we first meet Strickland, who is sort of CIA can do, yes sir, uh, no is not an option kind of guy. He's reading the power of positive thinking, and I re- I remember that book kicking around everywhere, which is the uh, you know which is the uh, which is what America offered as its most anti-communist individualistic. Approach to life. I think one of the most poignant mo- moments in the movie for me comes with the, uh, you know, maybe on the cusp of disillusionment, that Strickland character, when he asks his, you know, superior, you know, how do you judge a man who has lived his entire life according to the rules and then makes one mistake? Does that one mistake, Great and scene. he's referring to, maybe I won't say the specifics of the mistake, but he is, you know, trying to live up to this ideal of, uh, you know, white, straight, masculine uh, military man who has control over anything and everything. He feels like he's made one mistake, and this one mistake has completely thrown off, you know, his entire sense of self-worth. Now, is I don't know, he's not necessarily a sympathetic character, but I think it's a remarkably, as you were saying, loving and revealing moment about the villain, right? Yeah, about the, right. the villain. He's, he's the, nuanced, and that scene is nuanced because you think he's going to prevail. You're with him in that scene, as opposed to other scenes where you're against him. And lo and behold, he's going up against the five-star general, and uh, that general, uh, in a, in the continuation of that kind of set piece, just turns him on his head and um, says, "You better, you better get that creature back. No is not an option. Or it's, no matter what you've done for me, no matter how how successful you are, uh, you you will be. I mean, it's a great speech. You you will be zero. You will be unknown. The future will 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 have come and gone, and no one will ever heard of you, little." And I think that articulates quite well what the fear of this type of mentality is to be irrelevant. Um, can we? We I think we need to talk a little though about the amphibian man 
uh, himself and also about Sally Hawkins as Elisa Esposito, since their relationship is really the, uh, you know, the center of this movie. Right. Uh, the Amphibian Man is played by Doug Jones, not that Doug Jones, not the one who just defeated Roy Moore you know, for sending Alabama, but the longtime collaborator with Guillermo del Toro, a man who's, uh, if you saw Pan's Labyrinth, that fairy tale about uh, Spanish Civil War, uh, a, a child kind of surviving Thatcher Spain, he played one of the more memorable kind of ghouls, this long, white, gaunt figure who carries his eyeballs around in his hands and he lifts his hands up to, to, to his face whenever he needs to look around. So Doug Jones is a familiar person in the uh, Guillermo del Toro film but here he really gets to do something special. Part of it is that he is a person. He's not a computer effect, right? There's actually someone wearing a costume and makeup and a mask in in this movie. Right. Um, and I think that the physicality, the sensuality, the strength, uh, the kind of vulnerability that he brings to this amphibian man is just beautiful. I mean, it's really a romantic uh, relationship, but and and the movie, to its credit, does not look away from the more explicitly sexual elements of their relationship. Right? This is not a lot of. This is not just courtship via hard-boiled eggs, which I love that courtship sequence. But this is also, you know, a lot of time spent in the bathroom trying to figure out how each other's bodies work. Yes, and 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 when she when she really uh, enjoys herself, and actually, I, I mean, she seems to. Um, I mean, there are lots of sequences in the bathtub. Uh, alone, uh, w- with her being alone, just wonderful. Set to an egg timer, right? Everything right. comes back to right that symbol of fertility for her, where she hops in the bathroom alone. It's part of her routine, right? And then, and then when she realizes that she can have a even more pleasurable time with uh, with the with the creature, but she needs water. She uh, after they, they they have a bath sequence or two, she she realizes that. Uh, they need more room, so she fills up the entire bathroom with oh, water. What a in, sequence! <laughs> in a such a spectacular sequence, and of course, since they're four f- uh, s- uh, stories above the movie theater, uh, we go down and we see the the movie theater has all these drips coming down because they've been making love while floating around in her bathroom. It's just so it's just so wonderful. You know, I I, I would say that it, this is so interesting because there are three or four moments in the um, in the movie where you know, the willing suspension of disbelief is shaken a little bit, uh, you know, and even from the very beginning, how does a, in this top secret facility, how does a cleaning woman, uh, you know, the lowest of low on the pecking order and her, and her, a black compatriot, is that by the way, that, that every time that, um, that, that, uh, African-American actor opens her mouth, she steals the scene. Is that, is she from hidden figures? Her, her name is Octavia Spencer. Yes. She was, yeah. She's, from she's just so wonderful. Mm-hmm. And their, their, uh, kind of friendship is uh, you know it's never discussed, but it's utterly touching. But um, and I believe it's alluded to that they've been friends for fifteen years or so. This is you know, and it feels right. like a comfortably lived-in friendship, right. right? Right. Because after the after after the Sally after Sally Hawkins has uh, her um, her lovemaking interlude with the Gill Man. They have a very anatomical discussion about where his uh, thing is. And she says, never trust a man. Never trust a man, even when it looks flat down there, because this looks like some sort of <laughs> amphibian. It's, and these things are just, they just happen in the course of the movie. It, do, it doesn't stall the movie. They don't wait like a Woody Allen sequence and wait for the applause. But you're getting at that maybe sometimes struggles to suspend one's disbelief. I mean, this is a Cinderella story. It's a fairy tale, right? It's, right. You know, there's and not the, a lot of shock that there, you know, you'd think that people would be freaking out that there's this amphibian man in the facility. It's pretty but casual. It's pretty, right. but, but, but you still ask yourself, how could the low, the cleaning people, uh, how could she gain access to the chamber? But she does. And, and the reason why you don't let it stall your appreciation is because you want her to. Uh, and over and over again. Um, uh, and because I think moments. also because the movie shows that, you know, as a mute cleaning woman who is not, you know, some vivacious, young, uh, you know, attractive supermodel. Like S- Sally Hawkins is an incredibly attractive actress, but she certainly, you know, this this role could have been taken by, uh, you know, a, you know, up and coming, you know, young, so- someone who you more readily identify as like a Hollywood superstar. Sally Hawkins right. is not necessarily the most assuming of presences. And I think that this movie shows that she is someone constantly overlooked you know it's easy for people to look right through her to not recognize her presence she's just there to clean not talk and then go home i think that may have allowed her a bit more uh um, flexibility in terms of where she could be now of course you have to suspend your disbelief a little bit but i feel like that was you know part of why she was unnoticed in her sneaking into the amphibian person's uh chambers because she's not really noticed anywhere else in her life 
Well, now is that? But now she's not noticed. On the other hand, this creature is noticed all too much. So I guess you know, if I were your English teacher and you were my student, and after we viewed this together, and if the assignment were explain in uh, explain in um, you know five paragraph essay, why is she attracted to him? What would you say? I mean, I'm not quite sure at all, except. Um, uh, well, I, I think that I, the, sure. the physical attributes that he displays that are, you know, most anthropomorphic are quite, uh, you know, heteronormatively attractive. I mean, he's a very muscular figure. He's very tall. Right. Uh, and I think very sensitive. He's someone who does not talk, does not talk over uh, Elisa Esposito in the way that everyone else in her life talks over right. her, talks at her. Right. Okay. And I think he kind of responds physically. They're able to do that that dance that we see literally taking place at the end of the movie. That's what they're doing throughout, right? They're able to um, kind of get a sense of how each other right. responds to right. the room physically. Right. I we, we have just 30 seconds left and I want to make sure that we bring up Richard Jenkins as the neighbor, the closeted neighbor, uh, kind of advertising artist who I thought was her, one her, of... Her roommate. Her, well, neighbor. Yeah. I, th- I mean, they share the end of this, you know, Fab- wonderful... Fabulous law. place on their, uh, on their modest salary they can afford this. But so this guy, well, we don't have yeah, a lot to say, good. but I, you know, I he's just, very good. I found him as the third part of this trio right. of heroes uh, as just absolutely heartbreaking and, and loving in terms of the... Th- how his love life is thwarted by, right. but, you know, and, and you could, and artistic life is thwarted, but Richard right. Jenkins is worth, you know, going out to see. It is wonderful. In and, of himself. and it's, you know, you, it would be too easy to say it's uh, this PC stuff in the sense that, you know, you have the black woman and the gay, and, and there are a couple of sequences there um, that uh, are, you know, sort of are slightly stereotypical in the, in the, in the restaurant, for example, when the, you know, the, the kind of tough, tab hunter looking guy throws out the him the gay man and the black couple but it, the, the all that pc stuff is so submerged in the flow of the movie um you 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 think about it more because it's not shoved at you well it's a very very a wonderful movie i think that shape of water is a great way to end our movie going year and our movie going uh you know conversation year so I'm glad that you were able to come by and uh, and talk about it alan and it's a wonderful movie for the holidays because yeah. it's about uh coming to life it's a love story um great well that's the shape of water yes thank you alan it's playing at the criterion and and all around town uh these days so please do check it out and we will catch up with you in the new year for our best of episode i'll make sure to include information about how to call in uh, and leave your voicemails but just go to deepfocusradio.com to learn more